I feel like we should use this as our um, little clip at the top of the episode before the theme music starts. And- yeah, I, I mean it's it's a year in. We've 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 exhausted all of our thoughts. I think. <laughs> This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. On today's show, our guest is Kaylin Slattery. Kaylin is Assistant Professor of Economics at Columbia Business School. She has a recent working paper called Bidding for Firms Subsidy Competition in the U.S. The paper analyzes discretionary subsidies offered by state and local governments in the U.S. to attract firms. Welcome back to the show, Kaylin. Great. Thanks for having me. Also joining us to discuss the paper is David Agarwal. David is Associate Professor of Public Policy and Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Kentucky. David has a new survey article with William Hoyt and John Wilson called Local Policy Choice, Theory, and Empirics, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Economic Literature. David also has some recent papers on the mobility of high wealth and high income individuals and the tax competition that states engage in to attract them, which we'll link to in the show notes. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Kaylin, let's start with your paper. So in a 2001 article, Ed Glazer wrote, tax incentives seem to be a permanent part of the urban economic landscape. However, economists do not yet know why these incentives occur and whether they are in fact desirable. What does your paper do to make progress on these questions of why these incentives occur and whether they are in fact desirable? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jeff. So the reason that it's so hard to study this stuff is that, first of all, there's not very good data on what governments are giving or offering to firms. And furthermore, we don't really understand how local governments and state governments decide which firms to offer subsidies to and how much they're willing to pay. So in my paper, I study this competition between governments with the aim of saying something about whether allowing states and cities to offer incentives to firms is welfare improving. And then to your second point, how do they even come up with these subsidy numbers to begin with? If you read the op-ed pages after the Amazon headquarters competition, you would learn that people generally think that this is not welfare improving, that we're just transferring rents from states and local governments to firms at no gain to the country overall. The point I'm trying to make in my paper is that It's possible that subsidy competition improves the allocative efficiency of firm locations if it leads firms to locate where they create more value to local governments. So you could think about Amazon headquarters having a different effect on the employment and revenue in Detroit than in New York City, right? So Detroit's maybe a less attractive location for Amazon, but one that would benefit more from having new jobs, and they could express that benefit in the form of a larger subsidy. So what I find is that subsidy competition does have a meaningful impact on the location choices of firms. About 50% of firms in my sample would choose a different location in absence of subsidies. And these locations that win subsidy competitions do have a higher value of winning the firms. So I find that competition increases total welfare by about 10%. So you might think that's great. However, I really want to hedge my results here because due to the tense competition between locations, the state and cities are competing up the size of the subsidy. That means in aggregate, all of the welfare gain is going to the firms. So the firms are the big winners in terms of the subsidy competition. This paper is the tip of the iceberg. I think that there's a lot more research to be done in this area. Yeah, for sure. We'll want to talk a lot more about your welfare results and sort of the distributional effects of these policies. But I want to start with what you started with, which was measurement. I'm trying to give a little context to this problem. My sense was that it's hard to even know how prevalent these subsidies are. Obviously, we see some high profile ones in the news like Amazon's HQ2 competition. But My sense is that in the past, it's been difficult to kind of just like understand, like how common are these and how widespread they are across different states and localities? 
Yeah, it is really hard. And part of the problem is that state and local governments have a ton of different levers they can use to put together a subsidy deal. So one state may offer a tax abatement and some land for the site. Another state will offer a different type of tax credit and a low cost loan. Like there's all these combinations of things and there's no reporting requirements for how states and local governments document the size of the incentives. So in order to get data on this, basically my approach was to take a list of firms that I know were receiving subsidies and then read the local news articles about each of the deals in order to figure out what the terms of the subsidy deal was. I don't think that this is a sustainable approach, though, going forward, if we want to kind of, we, we have to push on the states and local governments to be more transparent about the tax expenditures. One interesting feature that seems to be pretty common, at least in the bidding process, is there's a lot of secrecy on the part of these state or local governments when they're in this bidding process. So it's oftentimes like difficult for the media or for residents or citizens to even find out about them until it's close to the deal being closed. Absolutely. And often they sign non-disclosure agreements with the local governments while they're in the process of negotiating. So you wouldn't know about it until the deal has been finalized. So I just want to jump in for a second. You know, that's something that, at least to an observer, really distinguished the Amazon situation from many of the others. Can you talk a little bit about the value of that information when gathered at scale? My understanding is something like 238 municipalities and regions submitted plans, which contained a ton of data, in addition to the quantum of their subsidy, just a lot of local information. And so that's, I gather, atypical, at least in scale, when there is a process of this kind. And I wonder if you might talk about how that interacts with the financial incentives. Yeah, I always use Amazon as an example, but I will say Amazon is definitely an outlier. They were building a headquarters with 50,000 employees and they have distribution centers all over the country, right? So a theory that many people have is that the reason that Amazon did such a public competition for the headquarters was exactly that, to get 230 cities to give them detailed information about their finances and their characteristics. In the average subsidy competition in my data, the firm is in contact with less than 10 jurisdictions and going back and forth about the incentives and the characteristics of the jurisdiction. But these firms are looking for a site to put their manufacturing plant or their headquarters, they're not Amazon and they're not looking to learn about hundreds of cities across the country. So it's definitely a smaller scale in practice. I want to bring David into the conversation at this point, because I know that David's done a lot of work on the many margins in which states and localities compete for firms, not just through discretionary subsidies. And I wonder if David, if you could put into context How do these discretionary subsidies fit in with the overall landscape of firm location choice and state and local tax policy? More generally, when states are setting policy, they're doing so in an open economy context where factors are mobile, people, capital, businesses, shoppers. And this means that they need to account for these mobility effects when they're setting their tax and spending policies. And so state and local governments also are really characterized by offering package deals where they combine different taxing instruments via the government budget constraint into spending. And so when states are thinking about how to set these policies, they need to account for not only the standard behavioral responses that we have, changes in labor supply, changes in investment, but also on the mobility of those factors, businesses, and people across jurisdictions. And they can do that in many ways. One way is they could adjust their tax rates. Another way is they could potentially adjust their spending and then allow their taxes to adjust residually. But I think it's very important to think about this bidding in the context of that broader competition that's not necessarily very targeted. Now, that competition can also be very targeted and maybe kind of something for Kaylin to discuss is how do we actually distinguish kind of bidding from other types of changes in the law that might be more broadly construed? So for example, the state of North Carolina had a tax break on its aviation jet fuel. 
And it said any carrier that spends more than 2.5 million in fuel taxes in North Carolina doesn't have to pay taxes above that threshold, right? And so that's eligible for any carrier, but it's very clearly a target for the airline that has a hub in Charlotte, American Airlines. And so is that tax competition or is that bidding? And so to be able to distinguish between this type of bidding and subsidy competition for firms, tax competition, and then more generally, like preferential tax rates, where maybe a jurisdiction has a lower tax rate on certain types of mobile capital than other types. It's a very fine line, and and states and localities have these multiple policy instruments and multiple ways of targeting those policies towards firms and people. I see this all the time in my data, these tax credits, like legislation, that if you were just reading it, you would think, This is a tax credit for all of the firms in this industry that operate in the state, but it's written so specifically that only one firm would qualify for for this. And I do categorize those as discretionary subsidies because they're essentially operating the same way when the governor and the legislature gets together and have to approve a tax abatement for a singular plant. That's what makes this problem so hard, though. And as David was saying, I think that we want to understand more the trade-offs between not only, you know, all of the levers that the state and local governments are using, but the trade-offs and the interactions between them. In my paper, I really have to simplify the problem, just try and look at this bidding for firms. But you're a state, you can bid for the firm, you can offer a tax credit for all manufacturing, you can change your corporate tax rate and do a ton of other things, right? And I think it's important to try and understand those interactions. It's a really tricky measurement problem. It's all the more impressive, the amount of shoe leather that has gone into putting together this database. I had one more thing I wanted to talk about, about just sort of the background that I found interesting here in your paper, which is that there's actually a market that has developed around this. And in fact, there's an industry, right? Then there's consultants that help firms solicit bids from different jurisdictions. And I found that background to be really interesting. Yeah, I think it's super interesting, too. They're called site selection consultants. There are consulting firms that specialize in this. I've been trying for two years to get any data I can on site selectors and have had very little luck. A reporter from the Wall Street Journal went to a site selection conference a couple of years ago and kind of wrote a not positive article about the industry. And since then, they've been very cagey about talking to reporters or researchers or things like this. Because the cynical view is that because some of them operate on commission, that they are trying to get the firms to locate in the highest incentive location instead of doing this analysis of where the firm would be the most productive given the incentive level. It's kind of interesting to think about these site selection teams because The states and localities oftentimes are often being very strategic. They have obviously their own economic development analysts, especially for larger bids like Amazon. I'm not sure if their states and localities are bringing in consultants themselves, but they are certainly kind of doing their due diligence to try and figure out what these bids should be. And so then I think this kind of then maybe gets into some information issues about who has the correct information, what's the uncertainty, and how is that being factored in by the firms and the states, given that they're trying to piece together all of this information. One difficult thing, I think, at the state and local level can be there's also this coordination problem sometimes between states and localities, where you have localities and states both contributing different aspects to the bids And that could potentially result in redundancies or maybe even excessive bidding, perhaps. Yeah, and sometimes the site selection consultants, they advertise that they had previously worked in the economic development agency. So they know all of the ins and outs of how to write the right proposal or to put together all your information. So it's kind of a revolving door lobbyist story, but in this cottage industry. I have a question for Caitlin, but also for David, based on his past work. What role do agency problems play here? So for the individual politician who brings Acme company to town, generates a lot of jobs, that mayor or governor tends to receive a lot of favorable press, and the costs are borne over time. And so that introduces at least the possibility of the actor placing their personal or career interests ahead of public interest. So I'm wondering if that 
came up in your research and how we should think about that. Yeah, Greg, I think that's a super important point. In my paper, I find that if the state has a governor who can run for re-election, so who's not term limited, they're willing to pay $40 million more for a manufacturing plan, all else equal, so compared to a term limited governor. So that suggests that there are very much political considerations going into the incentive policy. So when I think about welfare, I want to be really careful about thinking about the welfare of state's politician versus the welfare of the people who live in the state. And I think we still don't know kind of how these subsidy deals affect the people who live in the locality, affect the state's budget after the governor's gone 10 years later when this tax abatement is still going, what's actually happening in the local economy. That's a good segue to dive further into the analysis. So, Kaylin, you model the subsidy process as an auction. What does this mean and why is it a good way to understand these state and local subsidies for attracting firms? The auction approximates really well how states and cities negotiate with firms. So you can kind of think of a state hearing that they're in the running for a new auto manufacturing plant, for example. So, you know, BMW comes to Tennessee and they say, we're thinking that this site outside of Chattanooga would be perfect for us. What can you offer? And so then the city of Chattanooga and the state of Tennessee have to get together and decide how much they're willing to pay for the plant. Meanwhile, BMW also tells them, hey, we're also interested in this location in Georgia and South Carolina, right? So Tennessee has in mind that they're also going to be competing with Georgia and South Carolina. What happens is Tennessee puts in an incentive offer, and then BMW says, okay, yeah, this looks pretty good, but the thing is that Georgia put in a more attractive offer, and so we're leaning that way. Tennessee has the chance to revise their offer up so that they have a chance to beat out Georgia. So this bargaining process where the states are learning about other states' offers and revising their offers up basically approximates a second price auction where we're all in a room, you know, bidding on a Picasso with our little pallets and pull our paddle up when we are interested in raising the price for winning the Picasso at a auction hall. This will give you the same result as this bargaining process. So the reason to model it as an auction is the economists that study empirical auctions have all of these nice techniques to estimate auction models. So I get to apply those techniques, but I think it's a really nice fit. So a key feature here is that firms are trying to get the best deal. And that means this combination of profits plus, you know, whatever subsidies they're getting. And on the other side, right, states have different valuations for that new establishment, right? And so Georgia might value that new auto plant for like $100 million, but Alabama might have a $200 million value on that. And so the auction model is going to allow you to kind of recover those different valuations, as well as parameters in the firm's problem. Yeah, exactly. So even though I did collect a lot of data on subsidies, I don't have very much data on what Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee all offered. Like, I don't know all of the offers. So I have to rely on just observing the winning offer and then leaning on the model to allow me to get out parameters of the firm's profit function, as well as the valuations of the different locations. Now, What I do here is I know the runner-up location in each subsidy competition. And so variation in the observed subsidy size and the difference in the runner-up and winning location characteristics allow me to, to identify the firm's preferences over location characteristics. So you can even see in the raw data, subsidies are generally larger when the winning state has a much higher corporate tax rate than the losing, the runner-up state, right? So if you have a higher corporate tax rate, you may have to offer a larger incentive because you're a less attractive location just on the characteristics. So just to kind of restate here, you at least observe the winner and the runner-up for every firm location competition. 
And you're basically relying on reveal preference to tell you what kinds of characteristics of states and bids do firms prefer. Exactly. And the characteristics that are associated with winning bids are going to be what you're inferring that firms value about places. Exactly. I know the the winning bid, the winning location, and the runner-up location. And with that, I get out the preferences over location characteristics. So the tax rates matter. Whether the state is right to work matters a lot. Other things about the the local costs, so wages and rental costs, things like this, these seem to matter. It depends on the industry, of course. I don't only have manufacturing. I also have quite a few services firms. So they care more about whether there's a local university, whether there's an airport in the city. So they're, they're more looking at things like this. So that's how to get the profits. So this is an important piece because we don't think that firms are just choosing the highest subsidy place. It's a combination of the attractiveness of the state without the subsidy plus the subsidy itself. So I think this kind of, you know, result of the corporate tax is very interesting. Also in part, you know, because coming back to our discussion previously that states have these multiple levers, another component of the corporate tax is the sourcing rules. And states have been changing about, you know, how are corporate tax profits across multi-jurisdictional, multi-state operations. And there's been a trend to kind of switch towards a sales weighting in that apportionment factor, right? And so I think it's just maybe the fact that the corporate tax rate itself matters and is very important, I think also needs to be taken in the context of this broader definition of how are actually the corporate profits then taxed across many of these larger firms have multi-state operations. Yeah, definitely. And some of the largest discretionary subsidies in my data were actually the result of states changing apportionment rules specifically for certain firms like Nike in Oregon and I think Intel in New Mexico or Arizona. So definitely an important piece for these firms. So the next stage in the analysis is to think about how can we recover what the states are up to. So far, we've used information about the firm's choices to tell us something about the firm's problem. The next step of the analysis is to learn more about the states and what values they're putting on the firms. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that with the model? So in order to talk about how I recover how much the states are willing to pay, we're going to have to talk a little bit more about the auction. So in order to understand the bargaining process that I was describing, I talked about this auction where the winning location ends up basically making the firm indifferent from locating in their city or the runner-up city. So if the firm didn't care about how profitable they would be in each location, they only cared about the subsidies, by just observing the subsidies, I would know the winning subsidy is how much the runner-up was willing to pay. And I could use that distribution of subsidies as the second highest valuation for that firm and recover the full distribution of valuations off of that. So the runner-up would have bid up to their valuation. The winner offers a little bit more and I have this nice order statistic. And that's what we generally do in the auctions literature. The problem here is that the profits are muddying the water. We just said that the firms are not necessarily just locating in the highest subsidy place. So if I'm a city, I have to make the firm indifferent, taking into account that they may be more profitable in that other location. So once I recover the profits, basically I can say something about total welfare in a winning or a runner-up location. And I know the runner-up would have been the one that gave the second highest total welfare. So that's like their value for winning the firm plus the firm's profitability in that location. And I use that as an order statistic to recover the full distribution of welfare across locations. We can quibble on whether this should be really called welfare later, but maybe total payoff is a better name for it. So once I have that distribution, I also have the distribution of firms' profits across locations. Basically, I invert the the distribution of valuations from this relationship. So profits plus valuations equals payoffs. And I am only now missing valuations. I've got profits, I've got payoffs, and I can back out the valuations. So 
that's high level technical approach. Maybe that's not what you were asking. I think that maybe the more interesting thing is saying something about the valuations, like what characteristics of state and local governments correlate with what I end up estimating as the valuations. There I find the firm characteristics are important, of course, the number of jobs they're promising, the investment that they have planned. The local characteristics are important as well. So local unemployment, whether or not we're declining in manufacturing employment, per capita income, things like this. And that's good for my allocative efficiency story, right? We want the places that should benefit more from having jobs to be willing to pay more. But then also politics matters. So I already told you my result on the governor who's running for re-election. One thing that I've thought a lot about is how well can these local governments actually predict what the benefit of winning a firm is? I'm assuming they know how to do this. It's a really hard problem. Economists don't know how to estimate what the agglomeration effect of any one firm is going to be. So I see that they put a lot of weight on these industry multipliers that have been estimated. And the evidence is really mixed on the spillover effects of these things. So I think that's another thing that we need to think really carefully about when we think about welfare. How well are they actually predicting what the benefit of winning a firm is going to be? I think in addition to these uncertainties that arise over kind of the prediction process, there's also the issue of as economists, we don't really have a go-to model of what the objectives of government are, right? Unlike we assume, you know, people maximize utility and firms maximize profit. With respect to governments, they could maximize some benevolent social welfare function. Maybe they are Leviathan and just maximizing tax revenue, or maybe they're just maximizing the probability of re-election of the politicians. And so when we're thinking about these valuations, I think it's maybe important to keep in mind that they might not necessarily actually correlate with the actual then economic benefit. If we were to do an economic impact of what the actual analysis of winning that firm actually pays out in the future. And I think this is important. So when we're talking about these valuations to kind of then be thinking about them in this maybe political economy type of a context. And ultimately, that's also for the voters, a difficult thing to disentangle. Are the politicians actually good? In other words, are they doing a good job matching those valuations to actually social welfare? And that's a hard thing to do because if you win this firm, did that politician just win the firm? Are they a good politician or is it just a result the firm's investment? And it's hard to then disentangle these two pieces of information for the voters. And so I think it's important to kind of think about these as valuations broadly defined rather than what we might think would be the optimal from a welfare perspective, a social welfare perspective. Yeah, definitely. To get to the voters point, I've been interested in this finding that I have that the governors who are running for re-election are willing to pay more. So then I dug in and tried to figure out whether it was actually helping them win re-election, kind of trying to rationalize this result. First of all, most governors who run for re-election win in the United States. There's very little upset. But you do see the counties that win subsidy deals, they're more likely to support the incumbent by a small amount, like three percentage points. This effect is largest when the subsidy deal is announced in the year of the election, which I thought was very interesting because this means the firm hasn't even arrived and the jobs aren't materialized. You know the firm is arriving. It's maybe a signal that this politician is good, like you've been saying, but you haven't experienced any economic benefit. I'm definitely addressing the political economy of these as well. I wanted to pull on another thread of your discussion, Kayla. So I was interested in the connections between your work and the work by Greenstone, Hornbeck, and Reddy. They're actually using these competitions to try to estimate these agglomeration spillovers for manufacturing plants. And so they have the setting where they have a winning county and a losing county. And their finding is that incumbent plants, that is plants that extant in the winning county, experience faster gains in productivity compared with incumbent plants in the runner-up county where the firm did not choose to locate. And so a lot of people would interpret this evidence as an important support for the presence of large agglomeration spillovers. And so one point of the connection here is that the private value that states or localities are putting on attracting firms in your model, right? These agglomeration spillovers could at least be part of those valuations. Yeah, definitely. So that would be one way that the 
depending on the industrial makeup that the city has. I know that the incumbent firms are going to benefit from this new firm entry. If they all expand after that, then that's more revenue for me. I didn't give any tax breaks to these incumbents. So this is another way that my private value may be different than yours if you have a different industrial composition, right, when we're competing for the firm. So I said jobs was the number one thing that policymakers talked about when talking about these subsidy deals. Indirect jobs is the second thing. So it's direct jobs at the plant and then the indirect jobs, either at related plants like suppliers and things like this, or just from increased demand for services. So hotels and restaurants and coffee shops and things like this. There's no evidence yet on whether those direct jobs that aren't at the suppliers or the incumbent firms, like the the services jobs and things like that. I think that there's very little evidence that, that those materialize. And it probably depends on the firm. These are really idiosyncratic. I guess I think you have some nice evidence in your paper with Owen Zadar on that, where my reading of it is that there's evidence of employment gains from attracting the firms, but there's not necessarily then any specific evidence or there's not clear evidence that there's any effect of these on broader economic growth or other type of state and local economic outcomes. And so my reading of your paper and the JEP then is that Although these incentives are designed to try and attract these high spillover firms, kind of the productivity effects of these bids is, I guess, mixed is how I would say. Yeah, that's fair. Thanks, David, for promoting my work. I should say everything that we're doing in this paper with Owen is at the county level. And I think it's hard to pick up, you know, what would be going on in services, especially some of these counties are quite large. So we're looking forward in a new project to matching this with restricted census data and saying a lot more about who gets the jobs and what the spillovers are. I think that the difference between Owen and I's work and the Greenstone Hornback Moretti Million Dollar Plans paper is that the composition of the firms that get subsidies in my sample are a lot different and they're selected on getting large subsidies, where in Million Dollar Plans, they're selected on having large investments. So you may expect different effects from those different types of projects. I mean, certainly that's true, right? In that JEP paper, you're kind of at this broader economic geography level. And a lot of the evidence in the urban literature now is that when you have spillovers, they're very highly targeted on kind of smaller spatial scales. But at the same time, if the policymaker is is that county level of government, then maybe even if there are small kind of agglomerated benefits, then maybe we really care about what's the outcome at either the county or the state. Yeah, definitely. So now we're in the part of the analysis where we've used the model to recover these unobserved parameters. What are firms doing? What are states valuing these firms at? Kaylin, can you talk about what do you do next with this model and what are the results of the last analysis of your paper? Yeah, so the last thing I do is a counterfactual where I say, imagine we don't let states and cities compete with subsidies. Now, this is a real benefit of using a structural model is doing counterfactuals. So this is my short plug for using IO techniques in public urban field. So I just say no subsidies for firms. I just let them choose where they have the highest profit. And so I have those profit parameters from before I can predict what their profits would be in each location. That's the first step. And so I see that about half of the firms in my sample would choose a different location if they weren't offered a subsidy. About a quarter of them go to the runner-up location, actually. So the upshot there is that the subsidy competition matters for firm locations. Right, exactly. So subsidy competition matters for firm locations. And this was part of the debate. So if we don't think subsidy competition matters for firm locations, then we have our answer about welfare. We know that the firm would have located in the same place no matter what, and we're just giving them a subsidy and getting the same outcome. So subsidy competition matters. And then what I can do next is given where the firms locate in the counterfactual without the subsidies, I can simulate how much that new location would value having that firm. And so I compare the simulated values from the firms in the places that win firms with subsidy competition and without it. And then I can say how much the benefit to states has changed due to subsidy competition. In the aggregate, I find that welfare increases by about 10% 
This is because the firms locate in places that have slightly higher valuations for winning them under subsidy competition. However, the subsidies are quite large. And so that means that the state and local governments are paying back most of the benefit to the firm in the form of the subsidy. And so in aggregate, the states would be better off with the subsidy ban. Now, that's an aggregate. So there are states like Alabama that win 15 subsidy competitions in my sample and win two when I shut down subsidy competition, right? So they have an incentive to offer a subsidy. A state like Texas does well with and without the subsidy competition. So this is kind of why you say in the paper, a ban on subsidy competition might be difficult to sustain because there are clear winners and losers from the status quo. Right. So there are states that would, if they propose a truce, Alabama would be better off by deviating and offering a subsidy. So it'd have to be some federal regulation that banned these type of things. That gets us to the discussion that we had much earlier about, well, if, if we shut down this lever, they have many other policies that they can use. And we may see a lot more on the corporate tax and apportionment side or on some other state level thing that I'm not explicitly modeling in my paper. One thing that I found really interesting in the winners and losers is when you look at the manufacturing, a lot of the losers were traditional manufacturing states, kind of the Midwest and some of the Southern states. And so I kind of wonder if these subsidies are maybe helping to reinforce some maybe path-dependent outcome uh, rather than these firms. Ideally, they would want to be absent these subsidies someplace else, going to California or the West Coast or other places. And so to what extent are these subsidy deals kind of reinforcing an existing equilibrium rather than letting us move to a new equilibrium? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. There are some papers that talk about if you get a manufacturing plant 40 years ago, you're more likely to have higher manufacturing employment today. It could be an agglomeration story or it could be a local state government subsidizing the industry story. And I think it's hard to disentangle that right now, but I'm hoping to do something like that in the future with the data. I think this is a useful point to clarify a little bit more about the welfare concept and what we know about who is benefiting. You already said that firms are appear to be able to capture most of the surplus here, but I'm interested in a little bit more discussion about what is the welfare concept and then are we able to see direct benefits to people in these localities? Yeah, so the welfare concept is just the state's payoff. So the state's benefit of winning the firm less the subsidy they have to pay to the firm. And the firm's payoff, which is their profitability in the location plus the subsidy they get. Like we've been saying, what I estimate as the state's benefit, this is a pretty black box concept that is encompassing a lot of things, the politicians benefit, and also the state or the politicians expectations of what the benefit is going to be. I assume they know exactly what it is, but that's not true in reality. So everything is kind of ex ante. The analysis is at the time of the deal. What do the states think and and what do the firms think? I can't say yet exactly what happens. Again, in the JEP paper, we find basically that the number of jobs that we can pick up in the county is exactly the number of jobs that the firm promises on average. So that suggests that there are not a lot of spillovers. Maybe in some cases there are large spillovers, some cases the firm doesn't show up, right? And and so on average, we just find the direct number promised. And we're hoping to do a lot more on this to say something about what actually happens once we match it into the census data and can really think about the distributional impacts in the locality. That's in my pitch for future research. I also would like to really understand what goes on with the state's finances, but that's a much harder question. Even though these subsidy deals are large in terms of a state budget, they're relatively small. And even if they don't make the revenue gains that they were expecting because of the agglomeration or what not, you know, then where is it coming from? I said that they're not very transparent when they make the subsidy deals. They're even less transparent about doing any analysis after the firm arrives on what the 
job creation and revenue look like? So maybe David can say a little bit more about that. I'm thinking the job creation and then potentially the spillovers on tax revenue, but looming in the background, there's also the question of whether these policies actually are the optimal policies to achieve that growth in tax revenue and and economic growth. And so any policy always has some opportunity cost and a dollar spent on a subsidy is a dollar that's not spent elsewhere. And so if the goal of politicians is to achieve economic growth, what are other policies that could do that? Investment in community colleges, vocational training, early childhood learning. These are all programs that we know have very high bang per buck. So Nate Hendren has work that shows that they basically pay for themselves eventually in terms of tax revenue. And so I think it's important to keep in mind, well, if our goal is to do that, increase wages, increase employment, are there other policies that can better achieve that and do it potentially in a way that results in the longer term for even more tax revenue? And I think there, the evidence is that a lot of these other alternative programs, especially early childhood, community college, vocational training, firm-specific type training, that a lot of these programs have very high marginal values of public funds, more so even than this type of bidding. And so I think in big picture, we need to keep this bidding process in the context of these other policy alternatives for meeting these goals, not just necessarily for attracting the firm. Definitely. I think this gets back to the political economy of it. If it's more salient to give a subsidy to a firm and I get a lot of news coverage for it, I may prefer that to a policy that may be more cost effective and have the same exact economic effect or an even larger economic effect. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time. Kayla, what are the main takeaways that you want readers to take away from this paper? When I started talking to you today, I gave this pitch that subsidy competition has the potential to improve allocative efficiency of firm locations. I think what I find is that the results are not suggesting any great allocative efficiency gains. And in short, given the fact that all the welfare gain goes to the firms and the values that I'm estimating may really represent the value of the politician, the scope of these subsidies to be an effective tool to reduce geographic inequality between places is extremely limited. So this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to learn about this market. And given the data I have, we can start to kind of push forward to evaluate these policies. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Kaylin. Thank you. And thanks, David, for joining the conversation as well. Thanks for having me. This is really important work Kaylin's doing here. Now's the time on our show where we give our appendices, which are recommendations for our listeners. Kaylin, what's your appendix for this week? So I chose a very old podcast episode for my appendix because it was an inspiration for me when I started this project. So it's a Planet Money episode from 2016. The episode title is Why Did the Job Cross the Road? And basically, it goes through this subsidy competition, but on a small scale, where they're thinking about Kansas City and how Kansas City, Kansas is competing with Kansas City, Missouri for jobs. And so they have headquarters that move from one side of the border to the other for quite large subsidies. But all that's changing really is who gets the tax revenue from the company and the employees just change their commute a little. They don't have to hire a bunch of new people in the new state, as is usually the argument for the subsidy competition. So this got me interested in this topic. What's really interesting about Kansas City now is that they actually have a truce on subsidy competition. This was just signed in 2019. It's only for the counties right along the border. The two states' governors enacted legislation, and it was really hard to get the local government to also sign on and enact the legislation at the local level, because again, the state can give tax abatements and the locality can give property tax abatements. So people are really watching this carefully now. If you're at all interested, the Kansas City Star has done a series of articles about how well or not well this is working and how companies are trying to game the system to still receive incentives by locating right outside of the county line and things like this. But 
when I think about my subsidy being counterfactual and think about truces, the fact that if the truce works in Kansas City, this could be a good experiment to kind of bring it to other regions within the United States. But I think time will tell. Thanks for sharing that recommendation. That's a great one. I'm also really interested in this idea that you mentioned that it was kind of important for shaping your research agenda. Were you already kind of thinking in the public urban space or was this really like a flash of lightning moment for you? I think I was thinking in the public space. I was thinking that states have a lot of tax credits and programs And we think about corporate tax competition on the corporate tax rate, but we should be trying to incorporate these other levers. And so that's kind of how I started out this project. And then I realized that there was this discretionary subsidy competition, and I got interested in that aspect of it. I guess that maybe the podcast was how I learned about it. Uh, (laughs) It's been so long now that I don't remember. That's great. Thanks for sharing, Kayla. David, what's your appendix for this week? So maybe following up on this idea that all policies have opportunity costs, I think a very nice piece in this area is Tim Bartek's book, Making Sense of Incentives, which is available for a free download on the Upjohn Institute's uh, website. And Tim, he estimates his own models of the benefit from these subsidy incentives. And I think he finds something like $1.50. And of course, he acknowledges that there's huge uncertainty related to the multipliers used in this calculation, but he kind of walks the reader through this very carefully. And then I think a very nice thing is he then compares it to the benefit-cost ratios of other types of policies, education, job training, early child care. This fits very nicely. His book was before this paper by Hendren and Sprung-Kaiser in the Quarterly Journal of Economics in 2020, a unified welfare analysis of government policies, but it kind of relates to that point. And so in that paper, what they're doing is they're basically comparing, I think, almost 150 different policy changes over the last 50 years in the United States. And they're trying to figure out which ones have the biggest bang per buck using what they call the marginal value of public funds, which is similar to kind of a basically a benefit cost expression. And they kind of consistent with some of the evidence that Bartek presents finds again that early childhood education programs and education programs have huge marginal values of public funds, sometimes large enough that they in the longer term can pay for themselves. And so I think anyone who's interested in these type of issues and comparing across policies, Bartek's books and Hendren and Sprungkaiser's paper is a nice resource to learn about those issues. Great pair of suggestions, David. And I can't believe we've gone an hour without having mentioned Tim Bartek. So I'm glad that you swooped in at the last minute to rectify that oversight. Greg, what's your appendix for this week? My appendix is a forthcoming law review article by Sarah Bronin, who is a professor of law at the University of Connecticut. And the article is called Rules of the Road, The Struggle for Safety and the Unmet Promise of Federalism. So it doesn't directly relate to today's paper, but it very much emphasizes the role of location. And basically, it's about how federal and other national standards have undermined safety on streets. And the first thing it does is tease up this distinction between federalism on the one hand and greater uniformity on the other. And there's one advantage of federalism meaning the ability of states to do their own innovation, is heterogeneity, greater experimentation. You've probably heard the expression states as laboratories of democracy. So specifically, three values are meant to be advanced by federalism, representation at the state and local level, then the federal level, innovation and liberty. And we have a system of setting transportation standards that has some of the incidents of federalism. So for example, state DOTs, Departments of Transportation are largely in charge of administering transportation policy at the state level, and transit agencies are state or local or sometimes multi-jurisdictional, but they are not federal in nature. So superficially, at least, we have a substantially federalist transportation policy. The trouble is, there are a few issues, but one is that the design of the street is substantially dictated by a series of uniform standards. And some of these are codified in federal law. 
The main one is the Manual Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which Secretary Buttigieg's DOT is currently looking at. There was a proposal made at the end of 2020 to revise it, and that is ongoing now. But even though that's federal, states have to adopt their own version that is in substantial conformance with that federal policy. So it's it ends up being implemented at the state level, but also at the local level. Often local governments will use the same standards. Then she talks about other standards setting organizations, including fire safety organizations and others, and the rule that they create as a quasi-federal source of regulation because they de facto mandate national uniformity. So it's kind of nuts that things like street width end up being dictated by fire standards, but that's the type of problem that she talks about. And so she's got two prescriptions to address this. One is to have better standards. And that's part of what the METCD revision process is about. So in other words, there is a way to do the substance of what we currently do better. The other piece is more flexibility and creativity, which would be more of a shift towards federalism and away from the kind of faux federalism that we have now. I'm a little less optimistic, or at least not completely optimistic about the second one, because I think an important qualification to that second piece is that obviously there needs to be a degree of standardization across jurisdictions. Stop signs should look the same. Speed limit signs should look the same. But the question is, once you're out of the realm of purely technical questions like that, and you're in policy questions, should what is essentially a a highway design manual be dictating what neighborhood streets look like? Should a crash reporting system that is federal which is designed for car crashes, again, mostly on highways, should that be determining what a police officer fills out in a crash report where, God forbid, a driver hits a child in a neighborhood? It's not obvious that the factors listed on that form ought to be identical. So it's an interesting piece and kind of underscores the importance of local sensitivity, which I'll use that as the hook to this week's paper. And it's also available for free download. Great. Thanks, Greg. Super interesting. So my appendix this week is a reply all episode that aired a few years ago called Negative Mount Pleasant. And it's about a small town in Wisconsin outside Racine and a competition to attract a new plant from Foxconn. And what I liked about this episode was its illustration of the secrecy that Kaylin referred to early in in our conversation around these deals before they are implemented. So there's, there's a lot of strange things afoot at the beginning of the story in Mount Pleasant. A lot of visitors from out of town, a lot of soil testing or site prep that are happening. And it's complete with a small town rivalry <laughs> between a member of the community and a city council member. Anyway, it's a, it's a really entertaining, really fascinating look at one of these site competition deals from the perspective of the town that's unaware of what's being negotiated on their behalf. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Kaylin Slattery, David Agarwal, and Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on today's show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's Twitter handle is Densely Speaking. And our personal accounts are at Greg underscore Schill, at Jeff Harlan at Kalen underscore Slattery, and at David R. Agrawal. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps others, listeners, discover the show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. Thank you.